Most of you likely know the story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the four children stumble into Narnia and they meet up with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver who tell them about Aslan, the king of Narnia. Upon hearing about Aslan, the kids want to know what he's like. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, and they're either braver than most or else just silly, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course, C.S. Lewis is describing King Jesus. And so is the author of 1 Kings. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21. And what we'll see today in God's word is exactly what Mr. and Mrs. Beaver said. Jesus, always good, never safe. You can't read the Bible without coming away with the understanding that God is not safe, that he is holy, that he is infinitely glorious, and that he hates sin. I mean, he really hates sin. But sometimes we don't like to think of God this way, do we? And for some Christians, that's all they talk about. All they ever talk about is how God is angry at sin. And if you watch them closely, you'll discover they're very angry too. They are angry disciples. Most of the angry Christians that I have met have a high view of themselves. And everybody else is wrong. And everybody else is in need of correction. And they, of course, are right about everything. How convenient, huh? And they tend to overemphasize God's anger, and that's what they actually become, angry Christians, angry disciples. But then others only ever talk about God's love. And they see God as this easygoing, like, like Jesus is like an easygoing hippie. Like, whatever, man, cool. They think he's, Jesus is just easygoing, sentimental. He's kind of this pushover who's just desperate for our love and attention. And they never talk about God's anger at sin. And so what Paul Tripp said about God certainly applies to what's happening here in 1 Kings. Paul Tripp said this, God is angry. God will not forsake his holy cause. He will not allow us to be in the way of what he has planned for his universe. He will not abide by our no's. But it's not the anger of a vengeful, evil person who is out of control and wants to harm. It's the anger of grace. It is an anger of a God who is full of zeal for his holy cause, who will not lose his own. 
We must quit looking at the anger of God as the embarrassing uncle of Christian theology. We'd rather kind of hide it. It makes us uncomfortable and embarrasses us. Listen, in a world where evil exists, the anger of God is your hope. You don't want a God who looks at the fallenness of this world. You don't want a God who looks at human rebellion. You don't want a God who looks at all the brokenness around us and says, it's okay, because it's not okay. You want a God who will stand up and say, I will stand against that which stands against my holy will. That anger is the hope of the universe. And because God is who he is, that anger is never a contradiction of his love. It's never a contradiction of his grace because in the magnificence of his holiness, his anger and his grace kiss. And that's what we'll see in our passage today. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 21. We're going to see the anger that is the hope of the universe. We're going to see God's anger and grace kiss. 1 Kings 21 is a story about justice, God's justice. And I have to believe that this story was preserved in Scripture to teach God's people about His justice. The original audience of 1 Kings needed to be reminded of that because although they were in exile in Babylon suffering because of their sin, they were still suffering under the hands of evil men and they needed to be reminded that God's justice would prevail someday. They needed to be reminded that God noticed how they were being treated while they were in exile for their sin. So the story of Naboth that we'll see today remains in Scripture to remind us that although we suffer injustice in this world because we are Christians, because we are, as we were singing, children of God, there too is coming a day when final judgment will happen by God. And so this story about a guy named Naboth who gets his organic non-GMO vineyard stolen from him, it's a reminder that God's people will experience injustice in this world. And yet, it can give us hope. It can comfort our hearts. I mean, who knew a few stolen grapes could give you hope? 1 Kings chapter 21, look at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria, And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And Ahab said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. 
So Naboth has a vineyard beside King Ahab's palace in Jezreel. He has a wine company, Naboth and Sons. And King Ahab has been staring out his window, observing this beautiful piece of property. And then it dawns on him, I want that land so that I can have quick access to organic fruits and vegetables. Now, of course, Ahab is willing to pay Naboth for it, or he's willing to give him an even better vineyard. And on the surface, this all seems very morally neutral. Let me purchase your vineyard, bro. That's what it seems like. Naboth just simply declines Ahab's offer. It doesn't appear to be anything other than a normal business transaction. But to understand what is happening here, we need to know the importance of Israelite land and property. According to Leviticus 25, if an Israelite got in a financial pinch, they could sell, or better, lease their land to someone else since their land could either be purchased back by a relative or it would be returned to them in the Sabbath year. So there was this gracious provision in God's law for anyone who found themselves in a dire financial situation. You could sell your land if you got in a pinch, but it could be bought back by a relative or it would be returned to you and your family in the Sabbath year. But this isn't the case with Naboth. He is not in a financial pinch. He merely declines King Ahab's offer. And for good reason. Yahweh had commanded that the land should remain in the hands of the families to whom it was originally allotted. The land was given by God as a part of his grace toward Israel. Therefore, no one was to take the land away from another person. The Mosaic law did provide that the land could be leased for a period, but it could never be sold outright. And Naboth knows this, so he's not giving up his land. And how does King Ahab react to Naboth's obedience to God's word? His obedience to Leviticus 25? He leaves Ahab does vexed and solemn. We saw these two terms last time in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 43. Vexed could be translated as bitter and, and stubborn and rebellious, and sullen could be translated as angry. So, welcome to Ahab's pity party. But then his wife Jezebel enters, and she sees her husband, King Ahab, curled up in a ball on the bed, and he's singing, It's my party, and I'll cry if I want to, cry if I want to. You would cry too if Naboth snubbed you. Welcome to Ahab's pity party. He'll cry if he wants to. And in that moment, Jezebel tells her husband, Turn in your man card, dear. Look at verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And Ahab said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. You have to read Ahab's response to Jezebel with this mopey, pity party tone. And then Jezebel tells Ahab, get up and quit being a crybaby. Are you the king of Israel or not? Go eat some food and I'll get you the vineyard. Sheesh. And then Jezebel serves up a heaping plate of injustice to Naboth, the righteous man who just wants to obey God's word. Look at verse 8. 
So Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city... The elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. So Queen Jezebel sends letters out in King Ahab's name. And she calls for a celebration and says, place Naboth at the head of the table. But she also had two scoundrels bring in a plate of lies to this potluck dinner. The men bring a false accusation against the righteous man Naboth. They accuse him of cursing God and cursing the king. So they drag Naboth out of the city and stone him to death. A God-fearing man is murdered over his grape collection. People have killed for less. And so Naboth's stolen grapes remind us that just because we serve the Lord, it does not give us immunity to injustice. In fact, many times it will happen precisely because we serve the Lord. When we obey God's word, just like Naboth here, regardless of what culture says, Regardless of what you read on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, regardless of what culture says, when we obey God's word, we will suffer. 1 Kings 21 is what the church needs to hear today as we try to navigate the waters of our culture and all of its double standards. And so understand this. Because you are a Christian, Because you want to obey God's word. And because you will not bow to culture. Then you will be wronged by people. Hurt by people. Accused by people. Cheated by people. Lied about by people. Etc. Injustice, injustice, injustice. You can count on it, Christian. Discipleship is a lot about understanding that Jesus loves you to death and people will hate your guts for following him. Discipleship is embracing the truth that people will hate your guts, but you have to love them to death. Because you are a Christian, this world will hate you. You can't escape that reality and neither can I. But you are called to love those who hate you. That's discipleship. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's what Jesus said in Luke 6.27. 
You have to speak the truth. You have to speak the truth of God's word in love. That's very important. Speak the truth in love, knowing that, number one, they may hate your guts. It's not a popularity contest when you follow Jesus. They may hate your guts when you speak the truth of God's word in love. But number two, you have to love them to death when they hate you. Maybe even your own death. Maybe even your own martyrdom. You will suffer because you love and follow Jesus. Listen, suffer because you love Jesus. Don't suffer because you like being a jerk. Okay? There's a difference. There's a lot of Christians that suffer just because they're jerks. They sprinkle a little Jesus on top, but they really suffer because they're jerks to people. And they think, oh, I'm suffering because I'm a Christian. No, dude, you're just a jerk. That's why you're suffering. Okay? Suffer because you love Jesus and you love people and you want to tell them about the hope of the gospel. Don't suffer because you're a jerk to people on social media. Suffer because you love Jesus. When you love Jesus with all of your heart, people will hate you with all of their guts. It's going to happen. You will suffer in some way because you're a Christian. People will hate your guts because you're a disciple. If they hated Jesus, they will hate you. So make no mistake about it. You're going to suffer for Jesus, and so am I. You might be thrown to lions. You might be eaten by cannibals. You might be beaten to death. You might be beheaded like a Nigerian pastor this past week. You might be burned alive. Or you might just be ridiculed because you're a Christian and what you believe. Or you might be mocked by a family member, a coworker, or a friend. Or you might get fired and lose your job. But make no mistake about it, you will suffer for Jesus. You will be hated. And so do this. Number one, pray for a steel spine. And number two, pray for a soft heart. Say, Jesus, give me a resolve that will not cave to culture that will not cave in embarrassment about what I believe, no matter what the world says about marriage and gender, fill in the blank. God, give me a steel spine, but then give me a soft heart because these people are blind and dead in their sin and they're lost without you. So Jesus, give me a steel spine to stand up for truth, but give me a soft heart, a heart that breaks for these unbelievers that don't know you and help me to love them and speak the truth in love and don't let me be a jerk about it. But what we'll see next in our passage will provide us with some hope so that we don't drown under the despair of the fact that we are going to suffer, right? Because you start hearing that and you're like... I don't want to suffer. I want everybody to like me. So we need some hope so that we don't drown under the truth of, the, of Jesus' words. Said they hated me, they're going to hate you. So the hope of the Christian faith is that God will intervene to bring justice to his wronged people in his time and in his way. And that hope is just oozing out of the next verse. So look at verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? 
And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up, licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Did you catch it there? Catch what? Did you catch it? Hope. That's what we're catch, we are to catch here from, from verse 17. It's just oozing out with hope. It says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. What hope verse 17 gives to God's people who suffer injustice in this world. Even if the injustice comes our way, if it's from the government or some powerful person or group, what verse 17 screams to us is that no human being is exempt from the sovereignty of God's word. No matter how powerful they are or what status they have in this world, there is no government, there is no human, human being who walks around free from the authority of God's word. No one. No one's getting away with anything. So no matter who pushes you around or who abuses you, or who takes advantage of you, they are not exempt from the sovereign word of the Lord. Rub that into your pores this morning, Christian. Rub that deep into your pores. No one is ever going to get away with murder. Jezebel probably thought she covered all her bases. It was a quick, clean murder. No trace of evidence. But Yahweh saw it all. And Yahweh delivers a word to Ahab in verse 19. Just as the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, so too will they have your blood for a snack. And he sent a word to Jezebel in verse 23, the dogs will eat you for breakfast within the city. And he sent a word to Ahab's family in verse 24, those who die in the city, the dogs will eat, and those who die in the fields, the vultures will eat. It was a great day in ancient Israel to be a dog or a vulture. The dogs and the vultures are the only ones who benefit from this prophecy. This reminds us that even though evil men and women think they are getting away with murder, Jesus sees it all. Even though doctors think they're getting away with killing unborn babies, Jesus sees it and knows the name of every single one of those. And unless those people repent... And fall on their knees before the king. They're going to have to face him. And give an account for every single baby that they murdered. No one is getting away with murder. Jesus sees it all. He will intervene in his time and in his way. And you can trust him. But notice too how Naboth is mentioned so many times in this chapter. 19 times, 19 times we get the name of Naboth. 
Wow. It's like his ghost hangs around to haunt the chapter. It's Naboth, Naboth, Naboth. It's like on the Brady Bunch. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Naboth, Naboth, Naboth. Why? Why Naboth, Naboth, Naboth 19 times? What does it mean? It means that the memory of God's people who suffer injustice never leaves the mind of the Lord. The memory of every single baby that has been murdered since Roe v. Wade has never left the mind of the Lord. And when you suffer injustice in this world, it never leaves Jesus' memory. Jesus can't remember your sins, but he will never forget what you suffer. Christian, Jesus can't remember your sins. That means today, Christian, you are forgiven. I don't care how you feel. You are clean right now. You are pure. You are robed with the righteousness of Christ. I don't care what you did yesterday. I don't care how you yelled at your kids this morning getting ready for church. And all the parents said, that was me. I don't care if you yelled at your kids. I don't care if you got in a fight on the way to church with your spouse, in the car. You shut the doors and you were suddenly sanctified. Good morning, everyone. (laughs) Jesus saw what you did and he can't remember. We are in Christ, united to him. So when God looks at us, he sees his son. Jesus can't remember your sins, but he will never, ever, ever forget what you suffer in this world. Jesus will never forget what you suffer. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He can't remember our sins, and he will never forget the injustice that his people suffer in this world. But let's deal with the big elephant in the room. You know what it is? If God's people suffer injustice and God will intervene to bring justice to his people who have been wrong, then why does it take so long? A great question. The great question, right? Why, why, why? Welcome to one of the greatest mysteries of the Bible. I don't know why people aren't just struck dead instantly. It's because God is slow to anger. And he waits for people to repent. But I don't know why it takes so long for justice to be seen. But we needn't, needn't be worried about the timing of it all. The text here shows us that Yahweh does indeed show up to defend Naboth, even if it's after his death. I don't know why God didn't intervene before Naboth died and strike Ahab dead and spare Naboth. He didn't. I don't know why. But he showed up afterward to defend Naboth. And that should be where we focus our attention, is that God will intervene and justice will prevail in his timing, in his way, and you can trust him. The story doesn't promise us that we will be immune to injustice, but it does promise that justice will come sooner or later. It's a reminder, kind of like an ad that you flip through in a magazine. You're flipping through the pages of the Bible and you see an ad that says, Jesus, always good never safe. As you flip through the Bible, you will see ads like this, if you will. When you flip through the Bible, it's like flipping through a magazine where you see ad after ad after ad. You see reminders throughout the Bible that God is not safe, that he is holy. 
that he will exact justice on his enemies in his time, in his way, sooner or later. And you'll see ads, if you will, that remind you that he's good too. That he will intervene on behalf of his people in his time, in his way, sooner or later. And we'll see Jesus be really good to King Ahab one more time next week. And if it bothers you that Jesus is so kind and merciful to sinners, especially King Ahab, then you're going to have to take that up with him. I personally love that Jesus is kind and merciful to sinners. I really benefit from that truth. And you do too. Jesus, always good, never safe. Listen, if you want to attack God's people, you want to attack God's children, then you'll learn sooner or later that he's not safe. If you want to challenge Jesus, he's not safe. But if you turn to him for mercy, he's good. If you turn to him in repentance, he's good. He's merciful. He's gracious. And he will forgive you. We'll see this next week with King Ahab. He will turn to God for mercy. And although Ahab is downright evil, Ahab will get a heaping plate full of God's mercy, God's kindness, and God's goodness. And that might anger you, like that cell phone right now. Let's just talk about what, let's just talk about it, okay? You are loved, whoever cell phone that is, but everyone's sitting there thinking, turn that thing off. To be honest, including me. But that's okay. You are loved and forgiven. No shame, no condemnation. But let's just talk about what everybody's feeling. Because no one heard the last three paragraphs of what I said, did I? There you go. Is it off? Okay. Listen. We'll back up a little. Because somebody needs to hear this. If you turn to Jesus in repentance, he's good. And he's merciful and he's gracious and he will forgive you. We'll see this next week with King Ahab. He will turn to God for mercy and although Ahab is downright evil, Ahab will get a heaping plate full of God's mercy. A plate full of God's kindness and goodness. And that might anger you. So you have to take that up with Jesus. We'll talk more about that next week, but if it's really bothering you this morning and it angers you that grace is so offensive, then talk to Jesus about it. He's the one who gives grace to people who don't deserve it. And keep in mind that when you talk to Jesus, he is a God who is angry at sin and will one day judge sinners. That means if you haven't repented of your sins, you need to do that today. Admit you are a sinner and turn to Jesus because one day Jesus is going to return and he will judge the world and you will stand before him and give account of your life. And that even bothers some Christians, believe it or not. Judgment. They just want Jesus to be a pushover. They want a pansy Jesus who's just a softy and turns a blind eye to sin. But that's not the biblical Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus, the real biblical Jesus does not get manicures. His hands are not soft. They do not smell like strawberry lotion. 
He is almighty, all-powerful, infinitely glorious. And yes, he hates sin. He really hates sin. So as his people, as his children, we must quit looking at the anger of God as the embarrassing uncle of Christian theology. We'd rather hide it, right? It makes us uncomfortable and embarrasses us. But in a world where evil exists, in a world of Ahabs and Jezebels who run around and do whatever they like, the anger of God is your hope. It's like a movie. In a world where evil exists, in a world full of Ahabs and Jezebels who run around and do whatever they like, the anger of God is your hope. It really is. Listen, you don't want a God who looks at the fallenness of this world. You don't want a God who looks at human rebellion. You don't want a God who looks at the Ahabs and Jezebels of this world. You don't want a God who looks at all the brokenness around us and says, it's okay. Because it's not okay. It's not okay. You want a God who will stand up and say, I will stand against that which stands against my holy will. I will stand against any Ahab that tries to stop my plans or harm my church. That holy anger is the hope of the universe. And because God is who he is, that anger is never a contradiction of his love. It's never a contradiction of his grace because in the magnificence of his holiness, his anger and his grace kiss. And we see this most clearly at the cross, don't we? Where Jesus died. God's anger and his grace kiss at the cross. Where Jesus came. And died to save sinners like you and me. So see the contrast here. You have Jezebel who's lifted up in pride. And who murdered Naboth. And then you have Jesus who humbled himself. And died for our sins on the cross. And if you would like to experience God. With that kind of humility. Here's how you can do it. You look at the cross. You see a wise man hanging there. Dying in the place of fools like you and me. Because he loves you and me. You may despise him this morning like Jezebel did, but he does not despise you. You may think you are above him, but he humbled himself for you. Look to the cross. Look away from yourself and look to him and keep looking at him until your pride melts. And then you will worship. When you see him dying for you and dying for all of your sins... You will worship. When you see him, you will get your awe back. And that's really all we're about here at Grace on Sunday morning. It's giving you your awe back. In every sermon, we want you to leave not saying, what a great sermon. Oh, my pastor's sermons are so great. No, walking away and saying, oh, Jesus is so great. He saves a wretch like me. When you see Jesus dying in your place, rising from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, you will get your awe back. You'll be like rat and mole in the wind in the willows, if you know that story. In that story, rat and mole go looking for the baby otter, and they stumble into the presence of God. It's a fascinating moment. Listen to the account. Suddenly, the mole felt a great awe fall upon him. An awe that turned his muscles to water. He bowed his head and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. Rat, 
he found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, mole, I am afraid. Then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. That's worship. It's joyful trembling. It's eyes shining with unutterable love when you see Jesus. Worship is getting your awe back and saying, Jesus, always good, never safe. Listen, Jesus welcomes you today with a smile. He really does. He welcomes you with a smile today. His anger and grace kissed at the cross. So why don't you come? Come and worship him. Are you weary, tired, disenchanted, troubled? Are you just sick of yourself? Yeah, who's just sick of themselves? Man, right here, sign me up, first on the list. I'm just sick of me. Come to the one who's gentle and tender and caring and loving and merciful to sinners. Come and crouch to the earth and bow your head and worship and feel wonderfully at peace and happy because God welcomes you. This is what you were made for, so why not come this morning? He's waiting on you, and he's good, I tell you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that though you are high and lifted up and infinitely glorious, you humbled yourself and died a brutal death on the cross for us. By the power of the Spirit, your Father raised you from the dead and you were calling sinners home. And so we just come knowing how messed up we are, how much we sin, knowing we hate ourselves because we keep doing the things we don't want to do. We know all that, and yet we hear you saying, come. And so we just come this morning, and we bow our heads and worship and say, thank you for loving us. Thank you for welcoming us. Thank you that you will have us, that you've made us your children. We praise you and we worship you this morning. In your name we pray, amen.